Watch it for the two lead performances, if nothing else, and maybe bring a towel. Ty Burr of Ty Burr's Watch. Let's talk about Nyad, one of our feature reviews this week. Excellent blurb. Good stuff there to Cody. Picking up my guy, Ty Burr. Subscribe to the Ty Burr Watch List. Five bucks a month. Also, new reviews. Saltburn. I can't wait to discuss that, a film which a lot of people are talking about. A lot of buzz. Except for the Critics' Choice Best Picture, Golden Globe nominations. Priscilla. Finally knocked out that. Sophia Coppola's film about Elvis Presley's wife. Migration. Took the kids to that one. All of Us Strangers. That's right. They're calling it the Gay Sixth Sense movie. And also the old movie Rushmore. Six movies we're reviewing this week here on the podcast after taking last week off. Hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas and a happy holiday season. Cody, how was your Christmas? Holidays were good? Holidays were good. Uh, too short. I also brought my daughter to see Migration. So I'm in. I'm oh, good. In okay. All right. Good. We're on the Migration conversation. Excellent to know. It was an awesome 2023 percent of file. There's no question about it. We got to talk to Ray Romano. Thanks to you. We got to talk to Michael Shannon, Monica Bellucci. Incredible. But we're still seeking that great white whale that is Paul Giamatti, who now is just tormenting me. He's everywhere. He's not saying no to one interview request. My buddy Brett Baker, longtime cinephile listener, never met him, but great guy. He sent me, there's a 20-minute GQ interview, which Giamatti talks about all of his films. I'm talking about Big Mama's House. It's hysterical. He starts talking about Mark Lawrence when he worked with the music. I've been talking about Big Mama's House this much of my life, so it's laughing. The one that he did with Frankie Muniz, Big, Big Fat Liar, he talks about that movie. In addition to Sideways, John Adams, Cinderella Man, all the rest of it. 20 minutes! It's amazing. He talks about his facial hair, how he changes his facial for the roles, private parts, first meeting Howard Stern, how'd that go? So he said yes to everything. My buddy Josh Horwitz had him on his podcast. Amazing. Scott Feinberg actually just had him on. Feinberg does a fantastic job, a Hollywood Reporter podcast. He's asked the question I've always wanted to ask, which is my two top five favorite actors. Mm -hmm. Everyone always knows Pacino De Niro. But then it goes Philip Seymour Hoffman, Giamatti. And the fifth slot rotating, maybe it's Denzel, maybe it's Ethan Hawke, regardless. And he said to him, he goes, in the Ides of March, it's a movie I love, George Clooney. He goes, you got to work with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I often thought of you guys in very similar ways. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly my question, damn it. Scott, I would have asked that years ago. Damn. But Giamatti's answer was good, because it, it's always been my thing. My wife's like, I don't understand why you guys love these guys so much. I go, here's why. Because nobody looks at Philip Seymour Hoffman and goes, that guy's going to an Oscar one day. He's short, he's fat, he's pale, unfortunately now dead. Giamatti, short, bald. Like, this is not a leading man, but these guys are so talented, their talent overrides the looks. Like, everybody else can look like Zac Efron. Shout out to the Iron Claw, which everyone is seeing now and agrees with my rave reviews. But, like, those guys are real talents. Like, they got to where they were, Cody, because of pure talent. Like, Giamatti and Seymour Hoffman, those guys didn't know anybody. They're just great actors. I had no clue Giamatti was in Big Mama's house. I knew I was going to get you with that. <laughs> I was like, I mean, he's definitely going to get his attention to the Martin Lawrence thing. But I, I also had no idea he was in the movie, but you're going to have to watch this GQ interview. Back to my point, he gave a good answer. He just said, listen, I've known Phil a long time. And he goes, like, he's a you know, great actor. But yeah, we had a few scenes together, whatever. Horowitz had some good stuff out of him, too. He said, you know, what, what's your favorite actor? He said, well, what's an actor? Every time you see him gives you, like, confidence or gets you happy. Because Robert Duvall, what's a movie you love, the ending of Third Man? Anyways, point is, my man has said yes to everything. So finally, the holdovers press conference, Giamatti exclusive. Cody's talked about doing these things, but I can still keep doing it. You know, these press conferences of 30 minutes, which everything's great. This guy was great. This guy was great. The director was great. Cinematographer was great. This is a great film. Everyone should go see it. It's all just a big PR blitz. But I'm going to watch it. And it was awesome. And they asked the Critics' Choice Association members, of which I'm a member, to submit questions. Now, I submitted questions for a bunch of these. Ava DuVernay for Origins. There's a couple others I was on. So I'm at the gym paying attention, half paying attention. And the British interviewer, then says the following. Play the clip. Adnan Verk has a question about how would you describe your relationship with Alexander Payne? Um, I, 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 the best 
working relationship I've ever had. I have friends with him too. I mean, we have a friendship that grew up over the years too. Um, I mean, he's the best director I've ever worked with. I think he's the best director around. It's very um, fun and intimate and friendly. I mean, it's like we happen to be making a movie. He don't, we don't talk a lot about it. If if an actor needs to talk a lot about stuff, he can do that. But we don't talk a lot about stuff. And it's very simple things, simple direction, simple ideas. It's all very simple. And it's just, it's fun. I was astonished. I'm like, wait, that that's me. It's like, Adnan Burke. I'm like, yes. So at the very least, because I said this to my wife, she goes, well, he knows who you are. I go, I wouldn't say he knows who no, I am. No, he doesn't know. But at, at least my name has been said to him. I'm, I'm not sure if we're quite, but is that progress at all? It would have been funny if he heard your clip, Adnan Verk. Oh, nope. I, I, I've already said I will not answer questions from him. I'm not doing his <laughs> podcast. So no, I will not answer that question. But here's the big news. This week is the Golden Globes. I'm not going to the Golden Globes. The week after is the Critics' Choice Awards. I haven't been to the Critics' Choice Awards in five years since me and Max Bredos ran rampant and I famously met Ray Seahorn and her lovely husband. So I said, I gotta go this year because quite frankly, this might be the only chance I ever get to meet Mark. I already missed that one chance, the World Series, when John LeBoy had to go with me, Montclair Film Fest, one hour with Colbert. It wasn't like he was shaking hands anyways, but still, I could have screamed, he would have at least seen my face. So this might be the only chance. I don't know if he's going to show up. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But it's, it's like the last best chance of getting to go see Marty. So I booked my flight, United, 550. What a load of crap this is I want to vent to you about. Well, as I'm booking it on Priceline, <laughs> for the seat assignment says you got to call United. So I just called United an hour ago. You know me with the planes. I don't like flying planes. I don't like flying in general. This can be a tough flight. Six hours and 13 minutes. My like, God. So what I do is I stay up all night the night before, so I'm so tired, and then hopefully I'll just sleep on the plane. As I called, I said, what seat would you like? I said, I'll see. She says, okay, that'll be an extra $51. I'm like, what? <laughs> and the, the flight's $550. She's like, yeah, I'll see it's 51 I go, is it sold out? She goes, uh, yeah. Uh, that wasn't convincing. Like, but okay, but okay, sure. Where's my seat currently? Like, I just don't have a seat, but it's sold out. I don't understand what that means. You have to have a designation somewhere. If you sell at an arena, nineteen thousand five hundred, right. have a seat somewhere. Was it standing room only? And she's like, no, you have a seat. Like, What's my seat? She goes, complimentary is middle seat. Complimentary? How's that complimentary? That's just standard. Like, I'm just, I want, I bought a ticket. That's a seat. There's no, that's complimentary seating is the middle seat. Again, if you go back, avid listeners, from our time with T.J. Newman, I said before. If I had to, I would take a middle seat over a window seat because the claustrophobia. But I don't want a middle seat. I want the aisle seat. I want to get up. I want to walk around. $51. I go, she goes, or do you want premium play? I go, what, what kind of crap is this? This premium seating crap, which is like $189. I go, no, I don't want that crap. I, Metal Arc's not funding this. Like, I'm not going to get reimbursed this. This is my own trip just so I can go see Marty and hopefully Giamatti. In my head, I'm like, I don't think Marty's going to show up. I don't think De Niro shows up. I don't think DiCaprio shows up. I think they're going in Golden Globes. But I think Giamatti's going to be there because he's saying yes to everything. So I'm like, I am going to see Paul Giamatti. I don't care what the hell happens. I'm going to shake his hand. I'm going to say, seven years ago, you agreed to do my podcast at ESPN when Billions was starting. And then you said no. I don't know why you said no, but we're doing this. Give me your publicist information. You're coming on next week. And he's going to go, I'm in. Big fat liar. Whatever you want. <laughs> Anyways, I paid the $51. Here's the question to you because I don't want to go for very long. I'm flying in Saturday. I already texted Rosillo. Gonna hang with Rosillo. Gonna hang with Max Bredos. I texted him. He goes, I go for a run every Sunday morning around your hotel. I'm like, great. I'll go for a run with you, Max. We'll catch up. Tell old times from Sports Center. Rosillo in Saturday night. Ben Lines, of course, coming with me. Ben's like, yeah, let's do it. So Sunday night, I said, I'll take the red eye. That way we can just get in and get out. Do you still pay for an aisle seat on a red eye? Or do you just go to the middle seat? Because who gives a crap? I should be sleeping anyways. But what if I don't see because it's a middle seat and then I'm furious when I get home with my kids? It's MLK Day. They're off from school. Dad, why are you so tired? Why are you so angry? Why are you so cranky? Because I didn't want to pay $51 for an aisle seat and Metal Arc won't reimburse me. I think when you're sleeping is the only time when you really want that window seat because then it's like no one can bother you. I'm with yeah. you. I'm more of an aisle guy. 
I, I don't know why you're like, it, you're going to just get these extra fees. Like you got to just accept them, man. Like don't push back. Don't like worry yeah. about, Oh, it started at five fifty, and now we're here. Yeah, that, yeah. that shit's just going to happen. Like you got to just accept that part. It, right. They charge you. They, I mean, you're, I mean, she is full of crap. Like if the seat, if the plane is empty, your normal ticket will get you an aisle seat. It's just yes. when it starts to fill up, now they start charging for the premium seats. It's just, it's all a crook. It's all terrible. Cause that was my thought. I said, if it's not sold out, I'll just go middle seat, and then no one will be there, and I'll just sit in the aisle. But once you said sold out, I, go, I can't take that risk. That's a six-hour flight. You don't be stuck middle seat. I'm picturing planters, zombies, the guy snoring next to me six hours. I'm like, oh, my God. That would be disastrous. So anyways, next week is Golden Globes. I'm not going, but I'll recap it, of course. I'll be watching with all of you. The other concern is this. Although, as we just discussed off-air, both of our teams flopping at the wrong time. We've got NFL playoff football coming up here. So that weekend, Critics' Choice Awards, it's going to be 8 o'clock Eastern. That'll be 5 o'clock local. I'm like, I, we, we could be could be trickier. Eagles may be playing in that window. But the way our freaking defense is playing, it's going to be a quick exit from the playoffs. So I'm, I'm not as concerned about that. If it was like NFC Championship game, I'm like, okay, maybe. But I'm like, first round, we, we should win. I mean, it's, we're going to probably play the Bucs as a five seed. If you lose the Bucs... Yeah. You shouldn't be in the playoffs in the first place. So Agreed. I'm like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, I I'll I'll figure it out. I will be able, I'll watch on my phone. I'll check the game cast. Anyways, quick choice. I'm, I'm probably going to be traveling with the Dolphins if they have to travel in the playoffs. So if the Dolphins Correct. lose against the Bills this week, I'm going to yes. Kansas City. Dude, that's massive news. You're going to Arrowhead? Oh my god. Well, if no, the Dolphins are going to win. So I'm I'm sticking with that. Dolphins are going to win and then they're going to have a home playoff game. Against the Steelers. That's what I'm... That's I, what love, I'm I mean, I love that. Mike Tomlin, hey, congrats on your winning record. We're going to beat you anyways. Congratulations. You're right. The Dolphins lose the Bills. Cody going to Arrowhead. I mean, it would be cool. Just like, I saw a playoff come in Arrowhead, but you don't, you don't have Facebook. And this is the year, though. This If you do, like, I've actually... I don't know. Look at us breaking down football now. I'd rather go to Kansas City than Buffalo. This year, yes. Yes. KC doesn't have... Hey, listen, the Eagles beat KC at Arrowhead. There's a different mystique now around that team. Bills, Buffalo, oh my God. that With that weather... Anyways, a little football aside. Um, I did want to mention the Iron Claw because everyone's watching it now. They've all seen it in theaters. Hopefully have. I've seen a lot of people tweeting about it and such. I tweeted out my top 10 films of the year. It got 60,000 views. I have no idea if that's any good anymore. That's how little I know about these Twitter metrics. Before you send it, I go, oh, I got 10 retweets and I got 57 likes. Now someone said to me, no, no, the more important thing is, you know, what kind of views it gets. So the review, I, I, again, if you missed it, my top 10, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Holdovers, Oppenheimer, American Fiction, Poor Things, Past Lives, Defending My Life, Albert Brooks, The Iron Claw, Air, and Anatomy of a Fall. 19 reposts, five quotes, 195 likes, 64,000 views. Are those good numbers? Yeah, those are very good numbers. Very strong. I, whenever I get a good, like whenever something pops from mine, I always yeah. like to see who retweeted it. Like who who's the person that made this pop? And uh, yeah. I'm not saying like Levitard showed you re retweet. You, you, re well, you retweeted, which I noticed, which I appreciate. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, maybe Steve it's me. Simmons of the Toronto Six. Me, <laughs> and, Ed, you? me and Edna Garrett. <laughs> and by the way, Edna Garrett, a great one. Edna Garrett uh, tweeted the other day, goes, hey, I saw you, I, I, unless it was you at the Raptors game. I go, yeah, that was me. I took my son with Jazz Raptors. Raptors blew a 17 point lead. Kobe's going, she was up. And I, I'm assuming it's a woman, might be a man. The, the next comment was, even more handsome in person. I said, well, thank you, Edna. Let's go. <laughs> so Edna Garrett, my new favorite. Between Edna Garrett telling me I'm even more handsome in person and Patricia Clarkson calling me a dreamboat. I mean, I'm on a run here. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Monica Bellucci, Beetlejuice 2 is coming out in September. Uh, Tim Burton's new film. So I've already let Laura Brandt know. If we can get Monica back for times two, this would be awesome. They obviously back got the Keaton, end. right? They got Keaton? Yes. I mean, if we can get Michael Keaton. God, let's, let's dream. Uh, back to my Iron Claw comment. I just wanted to mention, because now people are seeing it, and Owen Gleiber, one of my favorite film critics, I read this blurb I was just reading here in uh, Variety. 
The film's central figure, Kevin Von Erich, is played by Efron, who has transformed his face and body in a way that's nearly as dramatic as what De Niro did in Raging Bull. We've seen dozens of actors pump themselves up, but Kevin's body is a mass of steroidal muscle he wears like a second skin. And under his choppy bangs, he's both handsome and slugged. And then later he ends it. In the end, it's Zac Efron's movie. He plays Kevin as a moving simpleton with hidden depths, a fellow of such decency that he doesn't dare disobey. He's the film's cringing bull. That is great writing, man. I just got to tell you. People say, what, what what gets you excited in life? Just great movie writing. That's fantastic. I, I put so much effort in those reviews last week. I didn't get one compliment from anybody I know. The only compliment <laughs> I got was Will Folger, who's listening, a fabulous coordinating producer at MLB Network. He says to me, he goes, I already listened to you guys. He goes, the best part, I'm hoping he's going to say, oh, I loved your wordplay. I loved your alliteration. I loved your passion, the way you wrote those. He goes, the best part was the way Chris Cody did the sounders. I go, yeah, yeah, that, that was that was just funny. a countdown. It was just nine. Number six. Yeah, just like <laughs> that must have been was, really offensive to you. Oh, I was like, I'm never writing another review again. I pour my heart and soul into this shit. I'm taking a middle seat or an aisle seat. I'm paying $51. Can't get reimbursed. We're going anyways. Anyways, let's knock out some movies here, folks. There's a lot to discuss and a lot to see. Let's dive into the one I think a lot of people have watched. And I want Cody's feedback on this, which is Saltburn. Have you heard of Saltburn? Have you heard anyone seen it yet? Maybe no. Jessica seen it? No. Okay, I hear more of a female audience watching this, but here we go. A student at Oxford University finds himself drawn into the world of a charming and aristocratic classmate who invites him to his eccentric family's sprawling estate for a summer never to be forgotten. It's written and directed by Emerald Fennell, who won an Academy Award for Promising Young Woman, which, polarizing film, I thought it was very good. And Carrie Mulligan is always excellent. But I, I've heard some detractors who are like, eh. John LeBoy, my buddy, long-time listener, he thought the movie was a flaming turd. Tyler Corn, a friend of mine, also called it a real junk movie. So, like, there's this undercurrent of, like, eh, like one big movie, she wins an Oscar. So let's see what the follow-up is. Sophomore jinx, perhaps. And I, as you can tell, perhaps, by that blurb, it's a poor man's talented Mr. Ripley. Great film, Matt Damon, and, of course, my man, Philip Seymour Hoffman, R.I.P. Guy aspires to be part of the rich world, seduces the rich world, gets into that environment. Chaos ensues. You know, you've seen this movie before, but Emerald Fennel perhaps could put a different spin on it. The different spin she puts on it is this film is absolutely vile. This is a filthy movie. He appears to be in love. I don't know how to pronounce this man's name. I think it's Coggin. Barry Coggin. He was awesome in the Banshees of Inner Sharon, Stan Van Gundy's least favorite movie. But me and Samson agree it was awesome. He plays the lead character, Oliver Quick. He's in love with Jacob Elordi, who's a very handsome man. We're going to get to in a second because he played Elvis Presley in Priscilla. He plays Felix. And the way the camera is looking at Felix, you can tell Barry's in love with him, or at least has love for him, as the narration says off the top. So he befriends him. He goes to his state. He goes to Saltburn, right? They, they meet at Oxford. And one night he goes in, there's a little people, and he sees Felix in there masturbating in a tub. And you're like, ugh. And Felix gets out, leaves. <laughs> and the shot as the water swirls down the drain is a Barry Coggin playing Oliver Quick slurping up the water. Ew. Just trying to slurp up the jizz at this guy's lap. Like, okay, that, this is the kind of movie we're looking at here. <laughs> I was like, I, I think we could have demonstrated that in a different way, but okay, fine. 10 minutes later, we're now 45 minutes in the movie. He's seducing one of the women in the movie. And everyone's like, okay, now kind of be, be wary of her. I think it's Annabelle, Sadie Soberall. Anyways, he's with her, and, and he starts to kind of move his hands around a little bit, getting a little frisky. And she says, it's not the right time of the month. And his response is, lucky for you, I'm a vampire. Oh, God. Jesus. Comes back, comes back, blood on his fingers, and proceeds to go down on her. I'm like, oh, my God. In case this film couldn't get any filthier, later on, there's a death. Spoiler alert. And he's so overcome, he has his shirt off in the rain. This is like a dirt pile. He then takes his pants up, just starts humping the dirt. Well, I didn't know what you meant when you said he's very overcome. <laughs> 
Oh, that's perfect. We need to bring that back as a sounder someday. That's great. And that was exactly accurate. This is a disgusting movie. And the worst part about it is I have recently David Sampson loves it. So this is going to come up. If Hopefully me and Sampson, we're going to do our top 10 movies of 2023. Because the people that love this movie, I'm convinced are either people who love the talent of Mr. Ripley or just perverts. Because this is not a good movie. And the great Paul Schrader, one of my favorite filmmakers, he puts movie reviews on his Facebook posts. He, he put his top movies of the year. He put one of his own movies, Master Gardener, which I put in my honorable mentions last week. He put his own movie in his top 10. And he also says Saltburn is just a terrible movie. Because anyone likes like anyone likes this movie is an idiot. Like, this movie sucks. I'm like, yes. Most of his filmmakers won't do it, right? NFL coaches don't criticize other coaches. Players don't criticize players. Traders are like, no, I'm going to put this out there. This movie sucks. I understand why these people like this movie. This movie is nominated for Best Picture at the Critics' Choice Awards, one of 10 movies there. And it's obviously nominated for Golden Globes as well. Uh, I would avoid it. Just because it's unforgettable doesn't mean it's good. It's trying way too hard, and uh, I didn't care for it. A film that I really did like, though, is called Nyad. The Remarkable, by the way, I'll give it one and a half Maple Leafs. I really didn't like it. Nyad, the remarkable true story of athlete Dinah Nyad, who at the age of 60, and with the help of her best friend and coach, commits to achieving her lifelong dream, a 110-mile open ocean swim from Cuba to Florida. This one hits at Cody. Ever thought about that? Ever thought about swimming from Florida to Cuba? I've actually, I'm someone who like has weird panic thoughts sometimes. And I've often wondered if I'm ever like trapped in the ocean. Like I, I do sometimes in the pool practice floating, like how I would if I think I was in the ocean where like mm-hmm. you breathe and then you like relax your muscles and let yourself float down and then you take another breath and then float back up. Like I, yeah, I've yeah. practiced floating in a way that I can relax my <laughs> muscles at times in case I ever find myself in like I'm gonna be in this water for six hours. I need because if if you just if you're panicking the whole time after like yeah. 20 minutes, you're gonna be like literally dead. So you have yeah. to be able to like float and like relax your arms so you can like actually. Yeah, I've thought about this. Okay, I'm glad that you bring some prep work to this because you're, you're gonna appreciate Naya then because. Again, if you have any sort of interest in marine biology, a nautical disaster, so to speak, I think people will like this movie. Maybe think of Seinfeld, actually. Is anyone here a marine biologist? But no, Dinah Nyad is an incredible woman and a fascinating person, and it's a terrific lead performance by Annette Bening playing Dinah Nyad. She's got an outside chance at an Oscar nomination, pretty crowded field, but she might get it. And I think part of what the movie's charm is that the character is very unlikable. You see this with great athletes, great superstars, perhaps the host of your program, The Dan Levitard Show. But people who are brilliant, people who are very smart, can often be difficult can often be prickly and can be egomaniacal. And Dinah Nyad is somebody who's all about herself. And it gets very frustrating for the people around her, notably in a wonderful performance, Jodie Foster, who plays Bonnie Stoll. You might see her right now in trailers for the new season of True Detective. Been a while since I've seen Jodie Foster in a movie, and she's terrific. I do think she's going to get a nomination for Best Supporting Actress. She plays her coach and her best friend. Doesn't know much about swimming. Both of them gay. Not together. At one point, thought maybe made a move. And like, now we're better as best friends. And she says, listen, Bonnie, I don't know you know anything about swimming, but you can be my coach. You can get me to do this. And Nyad tried to do this swim, which is actually 103 miles since she was 28 and she failed. But she's this marathon swimmer, you know, just heart of a champion, crazy resilience. And yes, a real pain in the butt. So she tries again. She tries again. She tries again. Just, just will not stop. And there's some great scenes where they kind of go at it. You know, Bonnie's like, you're just all about yourself. You're just all about your dream. Like, what about everybody else? And she's like, yeah, it's my dream. I know I'm a person of destiny. Do you know what my name needs? Nyad, you know, like it's a water nymph, like the Greek origin. She's like, yeah, nobody cares. But it, but it's it's an amazing example of resilience and perseverance because as frustrating as the journey may be, the end result speaks for itself. I will not spoil it. A quick Google search will tell you what happened to Diana Nyad. But I think real acclaim goes to the directors, Jimmy Chin, and Elizabeth Chai and Vassar Hale. They've been actually done documentaries in the past. This may be their first feature film. Not totally sure on that one, but I know they've done documentaries a lot in the past. And I thought 
especially in a story like this, where I'm pretty sure I know what the ending's going to be. Either Nyad's going to make the swim successful or she's going to die. I thought they made the journey compelling. And uh, I think especially as Chris and I are sports fans, if you enjoy the, the sports angle, the, the, the scenes of the swimming. Annette Benning says she actually wanted to swim in the ocean, but it just logistically, it's too tough. So they built a gigantic tank. I couldn't imagine how big this sucker is and just shot so many scenes of her swimming. And she said she trained with Diana Nyad, you know, for like a year of swimming. She goes, you know, I can't do it as well as her, but I at least got that motion down. And to your point about practicing your breathing, so much of it is breathing. Like she's like, this is 52 straight hours of swimming. And she's like, in that ocean, which you would know more than most. I mean, there, there's sharks, there's there's you know, jellyfish, like there's stuff, you know, going at you. Um, you know, at one point she's giving a talk to the college student. She's like, you know, go to the bathroom, you can just do it. You know what I mean? There's there's no thoughts around it. Uh, food, like at one point she'll go to the boat, Jody Foster gives her water, gives some some minerals, all right, keep going. Like it's just, it's maddening to think anyone even attempt to do it. But I thought it was really... Uh, an excellent movie, and I, I recommend it, particularly for those two performances of Annette Benning and Jodie Foster. Also good uh, supporting work there from the rest of the cast, but uh, I really enjoyed it. I'll give it three minute beliefs. It's available right now on Netflix. All right, two down, a few more to go. Before we get to our special guest, I didn't even give our special guest. Are you kidding me? Our wild card this week, Daniel Bruhl. He's from Inglorious Bastards. He's got a new film coming out right now. German actor. Guy's fantastic. Good Tarantino stories. You're going to love it. It's coming up. Let's start to Hummer. Priscilla. When teenage Priscilla Beaulieu meets Elvis Presley, the man who is already a meteoric rock and roll superstar becomes someone entirely unexpected in private moments, a thrilling crush, an ally in loneliness, and a vulnerable best friend. Every year when I start to go through all these movies, I go, there's got to be a movie or two that got overlooked. I think this is one of those. Priscilla from Sofia Coppola, who's an excellent director. Again, one of Samson's favorite movies, which is embarrassing, is lost in translation. It's a good movie, but it shouldn't be one of somebody's favorite movies ever, especially a 52-year-old man. But anyways, <laughs> she's a good director, and she's got a beautiful eye. And this is a wonderful story about falling in love. I don't know about a young Chris Cody, but I can imagine everyone out there, when you're 14 years old and you have a crush on somebody, and that crush happens to be, in this instance, Elvis Presley. Crazy how she first even met Elvis, was invited to Grace, uh, went to a party by someone there, how did her parents even allow her to go to these parties, uh, eventually making the trip to Graceland? I mean, I found all of it fascinating because I didn't know any of this. And again, I, you have a daughter. I do not. I couldn't imagine. My daughter's 14 years old. And as, as handsome and charming, I mean, actually, it'd be like Harry Styles. Day. be like, hey, can I take your daughter out? I'm like, no, she's 14. I'm going to go and right. say all this. One. Like, why don't you just watch this beat it, dude? Like, that's pedophilia. Not into that. But she gets seduced by Elvis because who wouldn't? He's Elvis. And Elvis charms the parents. Hey, you know, we'll, I'll have a chaperone. We'll, we'll make sure things are okay. And. She's going to go to school. She goes to live with him when she's 17 years old, enrolls in the Catholic school in Nashville, but very quickly realizes that this romance is going to turn into a nightmare. And the chaperones around her and Elvis's dad is going to be overbearing. And, you know, grandma's sweet on the inside. But once you're in that that fortress, you can't go anywhere. And that's what Graceland is. And, and very quickly, she becomes imprisoned. But I really enjoyed the performances. I thought Kaylee Spaney playing Priscilla, who in real life, I think is like 24 years old. So it's hard to play. She's gone from like 14 to 18. And the aforementioned Jacob Elordi, very handsome playing Elvis. Tough to compare him because I just saw Austin Butler and Elvis last year. He was amazing. But I, I kind of liked his Elvis as well. Different Elvises, but he's got a, a, a similar kind of soft charm. You know, this Elvis comes across a little bit insecure. Uh, he needs that nurturing, needs that love, needs that affection. But um, I thought the story was really interesting in that it went from, like I said, puppy love to something much darker, much more difficult. And the, the greatest indictment of Elvis, like I wasn't sure if he like beats her and stuff, but the drug addiction is just terrible. I mean, very, very early on in the movie, it's like, oh, here's this pill and help you sleep. And I'm like, oh my God, dude, like you're already with a minor, but then you're also giving her drugs and leading her on this way. It's, uh, it's, it's not for the faint of heart what ends up happening in this movie, but I thought it was excellent. Three Minute Beliefs, Peter Rayner of Film Week. This movie drifted away from me. It's more of an aesthetic object than a real biopic. It is beautifully shot. Sophia Coppola's got a real gift when it comes to the eye. 
Alyssa Wilkinson of Vox. Priscilla is not a biopic about Priscilla Presley. It's a memoir. It's a story told not about, but through its main subject. And Adam Kempinar of Film Spotting, Coppola flips the biopic completely on its head and then commits the same sin that so many other conventional biopics do. She covers too much ground too quickly and ironically doesn't offer its main character the agency she deserves. I will say the ending felt a little bit abrupt. Although, in this day and age, I also appreciate a movie that goes an hour and 40 minutes to pop it in my DVD player. Pets Priscilla, I'll give it three Maple Leafs again. And by the way, excellent soundtrack. Because I, I think I read somewhere that it was hard for her to get clearance for the Elvis music, which, of course, Baz Luhrmann did have in Elvis last year. But she uses a lot of other music of that time period, and it's an excellent soundtrack. I wish I had that vinyl, which I could have given the Alpha L one. But I really enjoyed the soundtrack. I like the look of it. Even the makeup's fantastic. Once Elvis starts to, you know, kind of like a scene at a vertigo, he starts to kind of shape her a certain way. Got the beehive going. Get like the dark eyeliner mascara to give that Priscilla Presley look. It's it's really an interesting movie. All right, let's get like, let's get Cody in here. Migration. A family of ducks try to convince their overprotective father to go on the vacation of a lifetime. It is directed by Benjamin Renner and Guilu Hamzi. The voices of Elizabeth Banks, Keegan-Michael Key, Carol Kane, Aquafina, Danny DeVito, and my main man, Kumail Nanjiani. What'd you think? I thought it was fine. It's like Moana for ducks. It's basically just a dad who doesn't want his kid to go anywhere. He wants him to stay just on the lake. Um, and they finally get the convinced dad to see the world. And, you know, it's the journey of ducks. I've always, the funny thing is, is a few years ago, I was, I remember saying to my brother, because me and my brother have talked about writing a script someday. By the way, that, that has to happen. I know. And and like, the like, funny like thing is, we yeah. were th and at one point we've had conversations where like, what is like the like, like maybe it's a cartoon like like what is something that and we we said, ducks the story of ducks so that movie was being made, this and now we're seeing it like we kind of had the idea for a movie about ducks so I just want that out there that hey migration I thought of this first but I didn't tell anyone so it's okay that you took it but, no but, but it, I, I thought it was a fine movie I thought it was like you know classic kid stuff my daughter liked it there was some laughs thought Danny DeVito was hilarious as Uncle Dan DeVito. but yeah. uh you know outside of that it was just you know it's a kids movie but it was fine you nailed it I have nothing more to add to that two and a half maple leafs fine is where I'm at and quite frankly I was distracted early on because Eagles Giants Tommy DeVito speaking of DeVito's was going to beat us I'm like are you kidding so it was end of three quarters and it was Christmas, which, of course, all Muslims and Jews go to the movies on Christmas. So my brother's like, hey, we going? I'm like, uh, I don't want to finish the Eagles game. But no, 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 of course. I'm, like, I'm not going to be that shitty uncle who sees his nephews and nieces twice a year over yeah. a regular season game, which we should clearly should kick the crap out of these guys. I'm like, yeah, we'll go to the game. And then on the way there, I'm like, wait, it's 20 to 18 now? Like, Tyrod Taylor's all of a sudden turning into Joe Montana? So I'll be honest. The, the first 30 minutes of the film, I was basically checking game cast. Like, oh, the bird's still flying. Okay, we got this. Yeah. What, what's also note again, the aforementioned Alpha Hill one, who I gave him a bunch of vinyl that I got sent to me by the Craig's Choice Association. So, like, I got these gigantic albums to, like, Oppenheimer and, and whatever the hell I gave him. So, it, it, very kind of him, he sent me a $100 gift certificate. You say, well, back home, I'm sure you take, you know, kids to the movies. This was also appalling. The only showing of migration at that time was in 3D, which uh, you're not a big 3D guy, right? No. I haven't. No. Are they still no. doing those? I thought they stopped doing that shit. Thank you. That was my thought. I'm like, there should be like two options. Like there's a showing at seven in 3D and seven fifteen not. Like, nope, only one showing at seven three D. No, they're showing till nine forty. I'm Ugh. like, well, he's got four kids. I got two. Like, we're not gonna have six kids wait. I'm like, no, no, 3D it is. And I'm like, how how outrageous Canadian prices are right now. Me and my brother and six kids, $138. Oh. I was like, geez, to watch Migration in 3D. Thank God for the gift certificate. I paid the 38 bucks, and my brother very generously then got the snacks, which I think was also the $138. I'm like, my God. Although he goes big with his kids. I'm not sure about you and your daughter. He gives his kids like a large popcorn, a large drink, and a candy. I got a Each? Candy. Yeah. Oh. I was like, very generous. I mean, a drink and a candy, maybe, but like we're sharing popcorn here. <laughs>
Like, but as you know, for me, I normally go large popcorn. Yeah. For like four kids, yeah. and then everyone gets a slush, and then we're splitting the popcorn. I go back, I get a refill. I'm like, no, yeah. each kid get a little, and the candy get another. And I was mad at Yusuf. I go, hey, next time you tell your uncle, either you get a popcorn or the candy. Yeah. You don't need both, right? That 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 you're just getting greedy. Yeah, yeah. especially to watch migration. But he's a very generous guy, and uh, I completely, I have nothing else to add. I, my nephew asked, because are you going to review Migration? I'm like, yeah, because what do you think? I'm like, I oh, thought it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was two and a half Maple Leafs. It was a good kids movie. You guys, my niece enjoyed it. You guys all seem to enjoy yourselves. Good animation. Davida, exactly what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. That's, that, that's what we're looking for. Like, someone's like, is it awful? I'm like, oh, it's awful. It's a, and it, again, it's quick. 90 minutes. Yeah. You'll be on your phone. You don't even notice it. How about some blurbs? Peter Sabinski, RogerEbert.com. Migration may pass the time. But my guess is that those kids will retain more lasting memories of whatever their parents got from them at the concession stand than anything up there on the screen. That's the perfect blurb. Yeah. I remember more about the uh, the Twizzlers that we got. And Katie Walsh, a trip. She, she also her. wrote, it's just fine. That's funny. That's what she wrote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is a family-friendly, seasonal, non-denominational holiday movie option. But it's more fun to pick out what makes this a Mike White project. No, it isn't. And his influence gives it a slight edge over the rest. Whatever you say. All right, uh, two and a half people leaves there. And then one more here, as far as the new films are concerned, All of Us Strangers. This one was awkward to watch while mom was in the kitchen. This is the story. A screenwriter drawn back to his childhood home enters into a fledgling relationship with a mysterious neighbor. As he then discovers his parents appear to be living just as they were on the day they died 30 years before. Color me skeptical after that plot synopsis. I'm like, oh, no. And I text a friend of mine who walked out of the movie. He walks out of a lot of movies. And I go, what happened? He goes, I go, is it like just, he goes, it's like the gay sixth sense. Like, what does that mean? He goes, he's a gay guy that can see his parents and nobody else can. I go, that's the movie? It's a guy. I go, oh, man, this is this is a tough sell. It's the gay sixth sense. Is a yeah, I'm a, yeah, I go, I go. You, we should use that as a blurb. That's from Tyler Korn. He works on uh, Skip Bayless' show, Fox Sports 1. What's that called? Speakers Up? You know what the hell it's called? First things first? Speakers Up? Undisputed. Yeah. Undisputed. Undisputed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, isn't there a Speak for, speak for Yourself There's show? Speak for yeah. Yourself, yeah. First things there's, first. There's, that, that, yeah, first. These are all FS1 shows, but Undisputed is Skip show. Thank you. Anyways, TK was like, dude, I walked out of it. I'm like, all right. I gotta be honest. I was pleasantly surprised. It's actually a very deeply affecting movie. And maybe just you and I are lucky enough to have our parents, but I, I was swept into the story. Although, again, my mom was doing the dishes, and there's a couple scenes. These guys are going at it. I'm like, I gotta quickly fast forward. The first thing I checked on my dad, I go, Dad, you still have the DVD player, right? He's like, yeah, I'm like, you're the best. I'm like, I gotta watch a couple movies. I got no problem. So Priscilla had on. And she was watching, so oh, this seems like a nice movie. I'm like, yeah, Priscilla's, you know, Priscilla's really cool stuff. This time I'm like, uh, can we fast forward it? What are you watching? Nothing, 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 nothing. Just, uh, you know, these two guys getting out of over here. You're like, who so put I this on? Who put this on? Yeah, yeah, what the heck? Jeez, you know, these two guys <laughs> naked, jumping all over each other. Come on. But Andrew Scott is a guy, I think people love that show, Fleabag. Shout out to Claire. I know she loves Fleabag. He plays, I think he was like the, the hot priest mix. She's like this very horny chick, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and then she's in love with the priest. I believe he was the priest. Very handsome guy. Um, he plays the main character, Adam, who clearly is haunted and sad. Paul Mescal shows up. He plays Harry. Harry's interested in him. They begin their relationship. But then, boom, he goes on a train, and he's in his old house, and he's talking to his parents. And when the movie starts, you don't know, like, like what's the big deal? He's just seeing his parents. But then the next scene, when he goes back, and he's there with Harry, he says to him, where are your parents? Because they died 30 years ago. You know, nothing crazy. They died in a car accident. So as the audience member, you're watching it. Wait a second. The first 10 minutes, he's with this guy. Then all of a sudden, there's like a train interlude. He's back in his parents' house talking to his parents, but he is as himself, and they're the same age as they were when they died. He then goes back to him, and now we are aware that they're dead. So it's definitely a story that is fantastical. And one of the many things that I read that I get sent for free, Playlist Magazine, uh, Vanity Fair, whatever the hell is, Hollywood Reporter. One of the things in there, it said that Andrew Haig, the director, was like, 
I know as a pitch, it was going to be tough to sell. Like people are going to watch a movie in which a guy's talking to his parents from 30 years ago. He's going to go with it. And honestly, it was quietly affecting. And I really enjoyed all the performances. I thought Scott was excellent. Mescal is very good. Oscar nominated, by the way, from previous year. Jimmy Bell playing the dad and Claire Foy playing the mom. It's a sweet movie, and I was surprisingly overcome because I, uh, it honestly made me feel about the bonds that I have with my parents and regrets that we all have. And it was, again, with Priscilla 2, it was a real sleeper movie from this year. All the Strangers also, a little bit on the radar. I wouldn't be surprised it does well as far as the nominations are concerned here, but we'll see. Adam Scott is up for, Andrew Scott, excuse me, is up for uh, the Golden Globe for Best Actor. We'll see. Maybe he can pull off an upset win. I'll give it three minute beliefs as well. I enjoyed that film, and I thought it was, um, as I said, quietly affecting. I'll give it three Maple Leafs. One old movie, and then we're going to get to our wild card, our special guest, Daniel Bruhl, and that is Rushmore. Cody, have you seen Rushmore? I have not. For a man who loves comedies, never have seen Rushmore. This is why I wanted to discuss it. A teenager at Rushmore Academy falls for a much older teacher and befriends a middle-aged industrialist. Later, he finds out that his love interest and his friends are having an affair, which prompts him to begin a vendetta. Last year was the 25th anniversary, and a reminder of when Wes Anderson made truly brilliant films. As I've said previously in the pod, he just makes the same movie over and over. He's got a bunch of shorts right now on Netflix. I watched one of them. I'm not even going to review it. It was terrible. The Rat Catcher. Roll doll adaptation, 17 minutes. It was not worth my time. Ray Fiennes, terrible, so whimsical. It's just, just nonsense. Tyber loved it. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about here. So I said, you know what? Let me go back when Wes Anderson was dealing 98, back when he was crushing it. And I just adore this movie. I was watching it with my cousin because he just watched it again. Jason Schwartzman plays Max Fisher. Just a hilarious opening scene in which he solves a very complicated arithmetic problem. And then he meets Bill Murray, who's playing Herman Bloom, who's a billionaire benefactor. And as Jason Schwartzman says hello to Herman Bloom and walks away, Bill Murray's character, Herman, turns to Dr. Nelson Guggenheim, the great Brian Cox, who we all know and love from Succession, and says, that kid's really got that going on. And Brian Cox says, without missing a beat, he's one of the worst students we've got. And then it goes to this great opening montage where you see that Max Fisher does everything but actually excel in school. And he puts on these incredible plays. He puts on like a remake of Serpico. It's amazing. Now I'm upset that Cody hasn't seen it before, so I'm not even going to say too much more. you got to watch it. Watch Rushmore. I do want to see it. Okay, you're going to watch it. You're going to give your review at some point. I'm not going to give it until next week. You're busy with football. In the next month, Chris Cody review of Rushmore will revisit in further, but I'm going to get foreign beliefs. I love the movie. I love the performances. Bill Murray has that great balance of funny, sad, which only Bill Murray could do, which again, Samson loved in Lost in Translation. Here, I thought he, he nailed the essence of the character, and Schwartzman really announced his arrival as a major actor. Francis Ford Coppola's nephew hasn't been as good since, although he was very good in a recent season of Fargo. By the way, I'm going to review the new season of Fargo at some point here in Cinephile. Seymour Cassell, I love. The late Seymour Cassell plays Burt Fisher. And Olivia Williams, she plays the object of both Max and Herman's affection. She plays Rosemary Cross, the school teacher. Owen Wilson writes this? Like, yeah, Owen Wilson, Wilson wrote that, it. Wilson that, was, that was what I was surprised to see. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know how much he contributed versus Wes Anderson, but to me, it's a collaborative effort. Again, it's got a, a great mixture of sour and sweet. That, to me, is what Rushmore is all about. It's again, focuses on that puppy love and first crushes, but it's got a great dark sense of humor and some like, wildly funny scenes, some good slapstick, and then it's got a beautiful ending, which is genuinely moving. I love Rushmore. I can't say enough about it. For Maple Leafs, Luke Wilson also in it, by the way. OR Scrubs. Oh, are they? If you haven't seen Rushmore like Cody, you should watch it right now. A couple of blurbs for you. Richard Corliss of Time Magazine. You have to admire the creepy arrogance of Schwartzman's performance. Todd McCarthy of Variety. A wickedly funny high school comedy for most of its running time, Rushmore is a bracingly fresh and original outing. And David Adelstein of Slate. What I wanted was a larger perspective, something more insightful than the one thing after another existential whimsy. Wes Anderson certainly is whimsical. And now it's time for our special guest. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Audi versus Lancia in theaters January 5th. Race for Glory is the name of the film. Daniel Bruhl joins us now. He's a terrific actor and gives a terrific performance in this film. Daniel, it's great to see you. I was thrilled to be able to watch the screen of the movie and really enjoyed it. The whole sense of competition and the sports and, of course, the great racing scenes. What first attracted you to this story? Uh, well, different reasons. Uh, first of all, I'm friends with Ricardo uh, for a long time. We always wanted to do something together. So uh, he sent me that script and he knew that... Um, I'm I'm a fan of that genre. Um, and it was clear. I mean, I've done my bit uh, playing Nicky Lauda. So uh, I knew that he wasn't, you know, reaching out, um, thinking of me to play a driver. But then um, I was, uh, he, he said, what about the, what about the manager? What about uh, the engineer, uh, uh, Gumpert? And I said, well, I'm going to have a look. Loved the script because also um, it's such a different world, as it's said in the, in the film, Formula One and, and, and Rally. It's a different game. It's a different uh, sport. It's a different experience, and that was so well captured in the uh, in in the script. Uh, diving into the into the eighties, uh, to that mad competition between these uh, these two. And I mean, I've I've been um, I've been with Audi. I was sponsored by Audi for a long time, so I know this brand quite well. So <laughs> uh, to me, it was fun to play this. Um, you know, perfectionist uh, 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 Gumpert uh, um, competing with the Italians. Um, so, yeah, and it was also the sense of humor, you know, culturally, the difference between the Germans and the uh, and the Italians. So there was so much in that, in the mix, in, in, uh, in, that, in that project that I said yes. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, Ricardo, Ricardo Scamarcio. He, he plays Cesar Fiorio, and he's terrific in the movie. You've got some great scenes together, back back and forth. It's almost like, uh, you know, a shark circling its prey. You guys are both trying to figure each other out and trying to get a read on each other. I, I just love, like you said, this is not something I knew anything about. I mean, race cars are one thing. And like you said, you, of course, were in Rush and worked with Ron Howard and that whole story. But this is the 1983 Rally World Championships. Like, it's something I didn't know anything about. How much did you know about it prior to reading the script? Well, it was, a, it was and is a very popular sport in uh, 
in in Europe. I wasn't so much into it. I think my brother was a little bit more, but uh, it was constantly on TV. Uh, and in Spain, I mean, I'm half Spanish, so in Spain, they uh, Carlos Sainz was a was was a legend. So I remember that um, in in Spain, my family watched that a lot. And then I was I was um, even as a child child, I was fr- uh, you know thrilled by seeing these images of these fast cars driving through villages and and driving you know uh through 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 forests and 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 whatever and then all these fans standing so uh close to it's almost like uh, the 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 tour de france you know the the um the uh the cyclists uh, um but then with these cars also the fact that uh women and men were competing in the same division in the same sport and such a dangerous one I, I I cannot think of any other sport where men and women are competing in the same, uh, uh, you know, uh, and 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 um, competing against each other. Um, so I always found it fascinating. And then uh, Audi was so successful with their uh, four wheel drive uh, technology with that Audi Quattro that you also saw a lot of Audis uh, all of a sudden on on the streets because everybody wanted an, an, an Audi, you know, that was just a very cool car. But this nostalgia for the uh, for, for the 80s, it, it, it just reminded me of my childhood sitting in front of a television in Spain and watching some rally race with my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> it's great that I was able to bring back fond memories for you. Like you said, you were born in Barcelona. You relocated to a young age in Germany. So you learned English in school. You're, you know, you're trilingual. You kind of love this fascinating life. And again, as we look at your filmography, you mentioned the fact Rush. That to me is a terrific film. Daniel, I feel like it didn't get nearly enough love, but you play Nikki Lauda, as you said, an Austrian perfectionist, and Chris Hemsworth in that film as well. What was that experience like, and, and how did it inform Race for Glory? Like you said, you didn't want to repeat that kind of material, but was there any aspect of that film, Rush, that you were able to take into this role? Well, yes and no. Uh, the First of all, the, the joy and um, the fulfillment I felt on the set of Rush. It was just a blast. It was it was one of the best experiences I ever had because uh, Ron Howard, and by the way, I'm working with him right now again, uh, which is uh, 10 years later on something <laughs> very different, but uh, he hasn't changed. I hope I didn't <laughs> change. Uh, so uh, it was it was just a wonderful working experience, also with Chris Hemsworth. And I, I always love this Mozart Salieri uh, uh, competition in, in movies, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 the envy, the jealousy, the love hatred relationship between two men and each one of them, you know, pushing the other one further and further. It's, it's the same with, uh, with uh, Cesar Fiorio uh, and, and Gumpert, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if, if you don't have this opponent, if you don't have that, that enemy and it, you, you don't become so strong, you know? And I mean, you see that in, uh, think of sports, think of tennis, you know, uh, there would be no Djokovic if there hadn't been a Federer and a Nadal, you know, so it's, um, they wouldn't have become so good. So, um, so that was also in the, in the script and it remi- reminded me a little bit of, 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 of Rush, but then the challenge was to do something different with it. Uh, I think the experience uh, race uh, for glory, cinematically speaking is, is a very European Italian one in, uh, in, in the, in the best sense. It's, it's just, it's uh, it's very grounded, very pure, and I think people will enjoy. It's very well translated. The passion and the thrill of the races translated into 
into into into film and cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then in the dialogues, uh, um, tonally, it's more UP, it's more Italian, um, and um, in the case of 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 Rush, it was uh, great to have these dialogues uh, written by by Peter Morgan. Uh, who is such an expert when it comes to biopics, and it was it was just a, a very sharp uh, uh, confrontation. Each little dialogue between uh, between Hunt and and Lauda and mm-hmm. between uh, Hemsworth and me was was always like a fight in itself. So uh, there are similarities and there are huge differences. So. Yeah. No, that's well said. Once again, Race for Glory is the movie. I want to ask you about a couple other films. You've had such a wonderful career, Daniel. Inglorious Bastards, a marvelous film, came out in 2009. Feels like only yesterday I saw that movie. What was it like being directed by Quentin Tarantino? Oh, the best. I mean, yeah. Uh, and, and, and another one of those that, uh, you know, were peaks in my, in my professional life. Uh, unforgettable moments. Uh, he is a absolute genius uh a crazy man in the best uh possible sense everything he everything about him is cinema he breathes cinema he expresses he he he, he, he dreams of cinema all the time he, he he everything he says is cinema uh the the man is the <laughs> Is, is 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 a is a living encyclopedia of cinema you can ask him any question about uh you know cinema and uh and the the passion uh, the way he um uh you know um inspires you um and inspires every everyone around him is so contagious uh you 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 get this uh, you know cinema virus when you are sitting uh, and working with him um this is really something quite uh, quite unique i have to say um so um yeah and that was like a a game changer for many of us it was the first time that i had worked on such a movie in such a scale uh and and yeah it changed our lives i remember that ron howard uh liked uh inglorious bastards a lot and so that was one of the reasons that he then uh wanted to work with me and 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 still although as you said 2009 to me it doesn't seem that it was yesterday but um i'm always <laughs> surprised when people are still even here in australia the other day in a restaurant uh, somebody said are, are you frederick zoller and i thought like, jesus <laughs> Um, they still recognize <laughs> me at that. Um, it, it, it's always great when you do films that do not age. I mean, uh, I always said early on in my life, if, if I end up uh, with five DVDs, <laughs> um, if they will still exist <laughs> um, uh, in the future, but if I end up with five films in my uh, in my shelf, that um you know are considered to be part of somehow film history then i can be so incredibly proud because it's difficult to to get that uh, um and it's and that's part of the fun of what we're doing you can never foresee what is going to happen with with a film even when you have a good script you do you do not know how it's how it will turn out you do you do not know if it's going to work out for you personally for the people and so to see that people 10 years 20 years later still are talking about a film and if you re-watch the film think like oh it hasn't aged that much it's actually still relevant it's it's kind of cool then then this is a wonderful feeling um 
And, and this is what we're always digging for, to find this little gold nuggets or pearl or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> no, you certainly achieved it with that. And Inglorious Bastards, the timeless film. Last one I want to ask you. I mean, what a great film. All Quiet on the Western Front. I mean, I would think mm -hmm. I've read the book. I've seen the original film. What you were able to do with that film, it was so visceral and so painstaking. Was that yeah. experience as brutal as it was to watch it? I mean, it was just such a great craft, uh, yeah. a great craftsmanship. Yeah, that was one. Well, speaking of these, um, you know, pearls, uh, um, um, this is a film that I'm incredibly fond and proud of because we produced it with our production company in, in Berlin and we had been working for a couple of years. Um, I mean, I could uh, do my debut film as a director with the production company. We had done uh, two or three other things together, um, but um we never had something that exploded uh, in, in, in that way and that became such a um, such a phenomenon. Um, I, I, I remember clearly the day when uh, my my partner, uh, Malte Gruner, the producer, the main producer of the film, called me and said, like, I have a script of All Quiet on the West Run in English, but actually we should do it in German. It's never been done in Germany. And it's such a classic in, in, in German literature. I think it's about time that we do it from our perspective. And I said, like, what a what an ingenious idea. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I read the script and I said, this is a no-brainer. We have to do it. Uh, the circumstances were so... Um, tough man i mean it was still the pandemic uh, hit its peak uh uh it was uh, i mean to make a war film is 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 is, is, is horrific and and complicated um anyway so on top of that uh, we had to deal with a pandemic and whatnot so but um the the the, the moment i saw it it wasn't the it was already edited but they were doing the sound mixing and when you do that um the people the main people like the director also my my producing partner and the sound guys they've been through weeks and weeks of listening to you know sounds and tweaking things and they're kind of tired uh, and have seen it like a million times so they were pretty unimpressed i watched it the first time and i freaked out i said guys this is uh this is a masterpiece. This is an incredible film. And I'm not talking about my contribution to it, playing one of the uh, um, supporting parts. Uh, uh, but I was I was just uh, uh, applauding the director, uh, the young actors. Um, I, I thought, like, this is something we can be incredibly proud of. Um, and so I'm really thankful that uh, um, the film was, uh, uh, you know, uh, celebrated and 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 appreciated uh, in 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 the way it was uh, internationally by 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 the people, because also for young people it's a, it's an important film to watch. It's a, it has an important uh, um, timeless message that um, that war is terror, war is death, and war is not an adventure. It's not cool. Um, so this is so um, movingly and, and horrifically uh, uh, um, um, told uh, and, and shown in the film that, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an important one for me. You used the right word. It was a sensation. I remember the rave reviews that came out, the Oscars, and big business all over the world, like you said. It really was a very memorable film. Daniel Brühl, I'm a real fan, man. Terrific job in Race for Glory, Audi versus Lancia in theaters January 5th. It was a pleasure talking to you. All the best, man. Likewise. Thank you. All the best. Ciao.
All right, thank you so much to Daniel Brule. He was awesome. I do want to really quickly do a few book reviews. In the last month, I've read two and a half books. What's the half? I went to the library and I read Oscar Wars, which my friend Chris Martenza recommended to me, but it was like 500 pages on the dot. And the first 300 pages was like the Oscars from 1920s to 1970. And I go, mm, I don't need all that stuff. Like, I got it. On the Waterfront, Olivia de Havilland, stories from the past, sure. Joan Crawford. So I actually did this because when you go to the library, you don't, you don't feel compelled to read the whole book. So I said, let me pick it up from where it gets interesting. So I picked it up from the 70s on, and it was fascinating. If you love the Oscars like I do, you should all read Oscar Wars. Um, I can't remember the author's name right now. I feel like it's Michael Stuhlberg, but it's not. He's an actor. Something like that. Check it out. Really good story about when Snow White performed at the Oscars. There was an actress who they dressed up as Snow White, did this incredible thing with uh, Rob Lowe, which was infamously bad. What's the name the of the book? It's called Oscar Wars. Came out last year. I'm surprised we didn't have the author on, actually, quite honestly. It is written by Michael Shulman. Michael Shulman. I went Michael Stuhlberg, the actor. It is Michael Shulman, the author. Very good writer. Um, the 70s stuff is really interesting, particularly Cuckoo's Nets, which you all know is one of my favorite movies. That came out in 75. He tells that story of when Nicholson won, the whole cast won, what an upset it was that year, and how I was able to have that momentum. And then, honestly, the best stuff that you should all read, Oscar So White campaign, uh, Harvey Weinstein, how he dominated with Miramax and the Oscars, and really fascinating for me, as a guy that was there backstage with Ben Lyons, how Moonlight won Best Picture. They tell the whole story in detail. Jimmy Kimmel is interviewed, what exactly happened, how the wrong envelope was given, Warren Beatty's reaction. The Warren Beatty stuff's amazing. Because everyone kept saying, give me the envelope. He's like, no. Because everyone thinks I'm senile. He already, he's calling an epetting. And she's like, they think, they think you're nuts. They think that you read the wrong name. He's like, no, I'm going to keep this envelope for the rest of my life. And she'll look, this is what was on the card. It was the wrong card. The card said Emma Stone, La La Land. That's why I paused, frozen, didn't know what to do. And then Faye Dunaway goes, oh, give it to me. The winner is La La Land. And of course, all chaos went to hell because they went up there and they quickly realized, no, we had the, the wrong card. It, it, fascinating. Honestly, read Oscar Wars. Just go to the library right now and just read the last chapter. Good stuff there from Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Price Waterhouse, where the hell it's called. The people that do the accounting. I mean, a fiasco of fiascos, one that we'll never forget, which you thought would be the most memorable Oscar moments ever until Chris Rock was slapped by Will Smith, which gets a passing mention in the book. I wish he'd had more time to really dive deep into that. But that one's so fresh, I feel like we've all lived it. The, the stuff about Moonlight winning Best Picture, really, really interesting. Other book I wrote, which I loved, is called Dearborn. Dearborn, Michigan is the largest population of Muslims in America. It's in Michigan, uh, primarily of Lebanese descent, but the cities are maybe 120,000. I think it's 30 miles inside Detroit, and half of that population is Muslim, primarily Lebanese. So this author, whose name I can't pronounce, but you should go read the book. I saw a blurb for it in Hollywood Reporter, and I said, I'm going to read this book, and it was awesome. It was 10 short stories. Here's the trick with short stories, is not all are going to be winners, but I like the fact they're quick. So if you have a short attention span, it's good. Books maybe 225 pages, 10 short stories, 25 pages a story. So the first short story, not very good. I go, hmm, it's all right. Second short story, I'm like, hmm, not great either. I'm like, I don't know how much more I'm going to do with this. But that's pretty funny that they came out of the gates with bad ones. No, I, I'm not going to lie to you. The first one, I'm like, nothing special. Second, I'm like, it's okay. Like, again, maybe it's just interesting to me, my heritage. I'm reading about immigrants. I'm like, okay. But I'm like, the average person reading this, I'm like, they're not going to find this compelling. Then the third short story was outstanding. Like, knocked me on my butt. I was like, that is a great story. Like, that is incredible writing, beautifully written. It's about a woman and a man emigrating from Lebanon aboard the Titanic. It's, it's beautifully wrought. And then from there, he takes some real chances. There's a story about a rapper. There's one, about a, there's one story called Yusra, which is about a man who dresses up like in a full-blown veil because he dresses up as a woman, puts lipstick, lipstick on, mascara, puts on high heels, goes to a mosque in a different city. But really interesting stuff. So I actually thought about reaching to Laura Brandt to say, let's have this guy on. But I said, there's no connection to movies whatsoever. But I want everyone to read it. So if you want to read a really good book, 
10 short stories. It's called Dearborn, and uh, it's available in bookstores now. And the last book, which is one favorite of the bunch, Everywhere in Oink Oink, an embittered, dyspeptic, and accurate report of 40 years into Hollywood by David Mamet. Oh, boy. Everyone knows David Mamet's my favorite writer. Everyone also knows David Mamet has become persona non grata the last 10 years in Hollywood because he's become a raving conservative. Like, Trump fan number one. He famously wrote an article how he stopped being a brain-dead liberal. So he's really, as I said, been excommunicated from Hollywood. David Mamet doesn't write films anymore. doesn't make movies anymore. He's basically he's been blacklisted in some ways. Who knows? He has written a script called Assassination, which is about the JFK murder. I think it's told from the mob point of view. I believe Pacino is going to be in it. The last I read was Mamet's was going to write it and direct it. I think now he may just write it. But the script has been greenlit, and Pacino is in it. Pacino, one of Mamet's favorites, of course, Glengarry Glenn Ross. So maybe Mamet will make his comeback. In the meantime, though, he writes this book, which is all over the map. I sent to Cody six excerpts, and I go, can I read any of these? Because the language is so strong that I go, it's I don't think there. I can read this. Yeah, because I said, if I read this, someone's going to hear this, maybe take the quote out of context. So I don't know if I can read any of these. Maybe I'll find one of them, but I'll just say this. If you like Mamet, as of course I do, and you love his writing, you love the book, it's a bunch of random essays, and at times they don't necessarily make sense. I Googled and saw a couple of reviews which just crushed it. They, like, they, they hated the book, and they said that they didn't care for it. It really could have used a strong editor, and what's the point of it? And he's just, but I'm like, but the title is embittered. Like they go, he comes across as very bitter. I'm like, that's the title. The title is an embittered, dyspeptic, and accurate report of 40 years in Hollywood. He hates producers, thinks they're morons. He's like, I've written 30 screenplays. Half of them have made into movies. More producers should have made more. Most of these guys are morons. And he takes a lot of shots at producers. Most actors he loves. He says, I was warned about Alec Baldwin. Loved him. Because I work on any day of the week. The guy's amazing. Glenn Glenn Ross, The Edge, love him. Al, of course, he loves. De Niro, amazing. There's, there's, I mean, there's a funny De Niro story. He says, when he wrote The Edge, he wrote specifically for De Niro. And afterwards, they do a table read. And he goes, I'm not crazy about table reads, but it's De Niro. Fine. After the read, Bob came to me and said, I like it, but I don't love it. It's very good, but it's just not a thing I have to do. And I've only got so many of them left in me. Are you mad at me? Mamet said, no, of course not. Bob said, you sure? Mamet said, yes. Bob said, good, because I want to ask a favor. I've got this piece of shit I'm supposed to start shooting on Monday. Could you take a look at the script? <laughs> And he's also got these illustrations in here that are just both incredibly funny and incredibly sophomoric. I can't even read it, but there's one of Cookie Monster, which I had to send to Cody. I'm like, wow. David Mamet now is just clearly turned into a dirty old man, 75 years of age. And my dear friend, John Nadal, who loves Mamet like me, and we saw American Buffalo together a couple years ago on Broadway with Claire and Dan. He had said to me when I told him I got Mamet's book, he goes, oh my God, it's amazing. I go, what? He goes, you've, you've made it. I go, what do you mean? He goes, your favorite writer knows you exist. He sent you a copy of his book. I go, that's not what happened. But I like that version. I'm going to tell that story to the kids. What happened is I tell Laura Brandt, our guest booker, hey, can we get Mamet? They reach out. Mamet says, I'm not going to do it because I'm not doing any media. He only did one. I think it was Bill Maher. But I know this guy loves my work. Here's a free book. So like it, it, didn't, it didn't even get to me. It went to Mammoth's publishing. People who are like, oh, he loves him. Here's a free book. So I'm like, I saved thirty dollars. I got to read a great book. But we're going to tell the story that for some reason he actually knows who I am. But I'll read a little bit here. <laughs> he talks about like Teamster story, the humors and stuff. What does a Teamster girl say after sex? Where are you guys from? How do you know Teamster has died? His wife picks up his checks. Always indictable were producers and of course agents. This told of Mike Ovitz. Young woman gets into an elevator with Ovitz. She asks, "How about a blowjob?" He responds. What's in it for me? Jeez. <laughs> like this, this is the kind of stuff we're getting from Mammoth. He also tells he always gets a gift when he meets somebody for the first time, like a major actor or director. So he said before he did The Untouchables, he's hired by Brian De Palma to write The Untouchables. He's a Chicago South Sider. My grandparents' generation lived in Capone's South Side. Some of them knew him and told me about him. I wrote a treatment for De Palma and I went shopping. I found a contemporary biography of Capone in a rare edition signed by the author. I had it wrapped 
and went to our first meeting. Hi, hi, and sit down, he said. As I sat, I handed him the package. I brought you something, I said. He put it aside saying, I have a problem with your scene too. <laughs> Hilarious. Hey, thanks for the gift. That's so kind of you. Like, boy, let's go right to the book. He also tells a story. Neil Jordan, he wrote We're No Angels. And Neil Jordan says something like, you know, I got a couple questions about the book. And Mamet's like, go after yourself and just left. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with Chris? Like, if I wrote a book for you and you're the writer and you go, hey, I didn't, I liked it, but maybe change a couple of things. I'm like, all right, Chris, what do you think? We'll collaborate. Mamet's just like, no, he's so happy. He's like, nope, my book's perfect. You don't like it? Go after yourself. Again, there's, there's countless excerpts that I'd love to read, but I feel like I'd get canceled tomorrow. So let me just tell you, it's a very funny book, very interesting. Here's one more for you. I'll do one more. Jeffrey Tambor, the funniest man who ever lived. He delivered one of my lines, disparaging some idea with an accompanying motion. I said, cut. And Helen asked him, what does that gesture represent? Helen, he said, that's masturbating. <laughs> no, Jeffrey. She said, this is masturbating and made an entirely different gesture. David Mamet gives zero Fs. And he's basically letting everyone know. I love his work, and I hopefully go back and watch more of his movies again. Glengarry Glenn Ross is the all-timer, but American Buffalo is an amazing play. And as far as his movies are concerned, Homicide, The Spanish Prisoner, State, Maine, House of Games, Spartan, Red Belt, The Verdict, one of my all-time favorites, and of course, Wag the Dog, which is such a funny movie and certainly was ahead of its time. Okay, one more clip. David Geffen threw a small dinner party for Mike Nichols' 70th birthday. Eric Idle rose to make a speech. What could be more enjoyable, he said, than having your face licked while ejaculating on the body of a young woman? The select crowd roared. As he quieted, he began to speak again. We all thought, no, you can't top it. However, I asked my wife, where, I said, where could you find a man equal to Mike in talent, humor, and grace? Hurry up and come, she said. (laughs) David Mamet's new book. Check it out in bookstores now. Two and a half book reviews, six movies, and an interview. We emptied the tank here in Cinephile. Next week, Golden Globes plus reviews of more new films. Thanks as always for checking us out. Please go to Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe, rate, and review. I'll take down Samson this Thursday on the best films of 2023, and I'll see you at the movies. Mm-hmm.